0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: There's so the Chechen wars are part of this Muslim Brotherhood, CIA unholy alliance. Most terror organizations today, virtually everyone in Iraq and Syria, Iraq and Syria, uh, most every, every terrorist uh, so-called jihad organization active is a direct descendant of the CIA Muslim Brotherhood operation that uh, developed a military capability with Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda in, in Pakistan and Afghanistan in the 80s.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, F. William Engdahl. Today's show, The Lost Hegemon. How the CIA Lost Its Holy War Crusade. William Engdahl is an international political analyst, economist, and author. He is currently visiting professor of geopolitics at Northwest University, Xi'an, China. Among his best-known books are A Century of War, Anglo-American Oil Politics, and the New World Order, Gods of Money, Wall Street, and the Death of the American Century, and Seeds of Destruction, the Hidden Agenda of Genetic Manipulation, completing a trilogy on the power of oil, food, and money control. His book, Target China, How Washington and Wall Street Plan to Cage the Asian Dragon, has been a bestseller in Chinese. His latest book is The Lost Hegemon, Whom the Gods Would Destroy, about the CIA and political Islam. Today we discuss the history of the Muslim Brotherhood and its involvement with the CIA. William Engdahl, welcome again. Well, thank you. I'm very glad to be
1: with you again, Bonnie.
0: In your book, The Lost Hegemon, Whom the Gods Would Destroy, and Historical Overview of the Muslim Brotherhood, or Radical Political Islam, you begin with a discussion of the Christian Crusades going back over a thousand years and likened former President George W. Bush's War on Terrorism, a modern-day crusade, to the Christian Crusades of the 11th century— What are the similarities? Do they share common goals?
1: The similarities between the Christian crusades uh, that began in uh, the 11th century, the late 11th century, and lasted, by the way, for 200 years, and the war on terror, is that the, the Christian crusades were various attempts by various popes in Rome to reconquer the Eastern Church that had made a schism, or a great schism, as as it's called in the uh, church history, between Rome and the Eastern Orthodox, as we call it today, churches, from Constantinople to Russia to Serbia uh, to Greece. And the split was on a very fundamental issue. There was a doctrine promulgated by... Uh, Saint Augustine, the North African uh, Catholic theologian, and that was the doctrine of original sin, that every life is born into this world a sinner and guilty before God. And the Eastern Church refused that idea vehemently to the point where they decided to split with the, the Church of Rome. And for 1,000 years, that has been a fault line between East and West. You can trace it right down to the present day in the uh, frictions between Catholic Western Europe or Catholic-dominated European Union and Russia, uh, all of the conflicts against Russia, or against Serbia in the Yugoslav War back in the 80s or the 90s, rather. Uh, or the treatment of Greece in the last five years with the uh, financial crisis and the destruction of the Greek the nation, the Greek economy. But uh, the war on terror that Bush proclaimed in September 2001 was, in a sense, a crusade, but not quite the way most people would understand it. It was a crusade to create a clash of civilizations, a war between Christian and Muslim, and wars inside Islam itself, to unleash the deepest hatreds and revenge feelings between East and West, Western Christendom, and Islam, and also Eastern Orthodoxy. So this is very much what we've seen unfold since 2001. Look at the Arab Spring closely. What I documented in, in uh, my book, *The Lost Hegemon. Uh that was an operation to bring a death cult, a Freemasonic-like death cult called the Muslim Brotherhood, by the Obama Clinton administration when she was Secretary of State, into power throughout the entire Middle East, including Saudi Arabia, was on the on the hit list of, of this. Arab Spring regime change destabilization from from the CIA and and, uh, the Clinton uh, State Department. So it's very much uh, similar to the uh, Holy Crusades of the Middle Ages. You have slaughter of innocents, looting, wars of unspeakable destruction organized by the West to... uh, uh, achieve certain goals, this time for oil, then for control of Palestine, and taking that from the Muslims, and taking that from also from uh, the Eastern Constantinople uh, Church. So there are many similarities, but the idea of the Crusade, uh, killing heretics for Christ, holy war versus jihad, you know, St. Bernard of Clairvaux was, was the patron saint of the Crusades. He recruited uh, illiterate peasants from France and all over Europe uh, to join this crusade. And he preached that uh, this, this was a war. If you kill heretic uh, Muslims, uh, or Saracens they called them, uh, then you would be saved. You would have a special dispensation from Christ and the church. And of course, people joined in in, uh, uh, the hundreds of thousands and looted everything on the way from continental Europe down through the Balkans into into, uh, Constantinople. Not much different from what Washington is doing in the Middle East today, in Syria, in Libya, and uh, other places.
0: So would you say that ultimately the goals of both were similar in terms of uh, looting and stealing resources rather than religion?
1: Very much. Very much. And it's a question of political power, because as long as a different political power with a religious split schism to Rome was in control of the wealth of what today is Turkey, what then is Constantinople and the Eastern Empire? Uh, that had to be destroyed. That had to be uh, challenged, as as the Vatican and the financial interests behind the Vatican saw.
0: The Muslim Brotherhood was born in Egypt right after the First World War, according to your book. How did mm-hmm. how did World War One and its aftermath serve as an incubator? for the Muslim Brotherhood?
1: Well, the, the Muslim Brotherhood emerged out of Egypt in 1926, 28, in that period, as a secret society with a public facade of doing good works, service, they call it. And the hidden agenda was a assassin's cult, a, a military arm of the Brotherhood, that uses all means necessary to come to power where possible and their structure, everything they do reminds me very much of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, which uh, maybe is is not an accident but uh, be that as it may. So the Brotherhood in Egypt grew up out of the resentment of the betrayal in World War I by the British and by the West, the so-called Christians, of the the Muslims, of the Muslim world. Instead of giving the different countries, Saudi Arabia, Iraq and so forth, freedom and independence, which is what the British and the French promised, the British and the French had a secret agreement called Sykes-Picot, At the time, Tsarist Russia was a partner to that, but after the Bolshevik Revolution, they revealed the secrets. The Sykes-Picot divided the entire former lands of the Ottoman Turkish Empire. So Syria, for example, at that point became French, as did Lebanon. Trans-Jordan, or what we know today as Jordan, became a British. And the King of Jordan, to this day, has ties with the British elites that are very, very deep, to put it mildly. Palestine, what Halford Mackinder, the father of British geopolitics, called the greatest gain of the British Empire in the First World War, Palestine became a League of Nations protectorate of Great Britain. So Britain could control that pivotal area in the whole region. And Iraq became... British. Now, the British knew. There's an article I published in my book, The Century of War. Uh, I published the picture from this article in May, I believe it was in 1914, before the First World War, and it was a picture from a British oil magazine of the oil fields of Iraq, or at that point it was Mesopotamia as a province of the Ottoman Empire. And the oil fields of Mosul and all these areas, Kirkuk, were known to British geologists at that time. So, uh, this enlisting of the House of Saud, the Bedouins in Saudi Arabia, of the Jordanian, and uh, other forces against the Germans and against Ottoman Turkey mainly, was betrayed after the war by the carving up of Sykes Picot. And that created a huge Arab rage and resentment that the Muslim Brotherhood then channeled into its own political agenda. Most Islam before the 1990s around the world was peaceful, was nonviolent, was non jihadist. They took their faith as their faith, but uh, didn't force anybody to believe it. But after the 90s, the influence of what I call a marriage made in hell, that is the Muslim Brotherhood back in the early 50s when the CIA had discovered them, uh, first in Germany. Back in the early 50s, they made an assassination attempt against Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt. And the CIA had to get them out of the country for the leadership of the Brotherhood. And they smuggled them out of Egypt into Saudi Arabia where the Americans had uh, more or less total control over the royal family. And the deal was that the Muslim Brotherhood would be given support, sanctuary, they would be become professors at the religious universities of fundamentalist Wahhabism in Saudi Arabia, the most primitive bestial, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, religion. Uh, of the 17th century Bedouin uh, camel herders and these are the ones that smash statues that rob the bones out of the grave of the Prophet Muhammad because graves were a, a sacrilege in their view and uh, the rights of women are non-existent because women are simply property of their husbands, their things. So this wonderful humanistic brand of Islam called Wahhabism in the Saudi Kingdom was married with the Muslim Brotherhood, which had a political evangelical recruiting ideology. So Saudi oil money, beginning in the 1950s, began to finance creation of entities like the Muslim World League in Jihad, in in Riyadh. And the Muslim World League was the missionary arm, like, like the Mormons or something like that, I guess, the missionary arm of the Muslim Brotherhood going with Saudi oil money into Pakistan, into Afghanistan, and any place it could get its foot in the door. And that's, by the way, the background of the Mujahideen in the uh, beginning of the 1980s with the CIA against the Soviet Red Army.
0: I'm speaking with international political analyst, economist, and author, F. William Ingdahl. Today's show, The Lost Hegemon, How the CIA Lost Its Holy War Crusade. I'm Bonnie Faulkner, this is Guns and Butter. How was it that Germany in the 30s or the 40s, a Nazi Germany, hooked up with the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt? How did that happen?
1: Uh, it happened because the Brotherhood came to Berlin. They were on the hit list of the British who controlled Egypt at that time for various reasons and were forced into exile so they went my enemy's enemy is my friend they went to berlin including the grand mufti of jerusalem and and the nazis realized that the the hate that these brothers had against infidels and infidels for them were communists they were anybody who didn't follow their their line of psychopathy or sociopathy, uh, that that could be used as a weapon against the Soviet Union. So they created a division of the SS, made up only of Muslim Brotherhood, recruited from the Islamic parts of the Soviet Union, who had many uh, arguments with Stalin's hard-handed policies.
0: So then, did Germany use the Muslim Brotherhood to attack parts of Russia?
1: Of the State Union, yes, most definitely.
0: Now, how was that accomplished?
1: Well, they created a division of the SS, the feared SS, called the Hanchar Division, which was entirely made up of Muslim Brotherhood. They had these uh, special hats that uh, that Muslims wore in those days. Uh, and then a Nazi swastika on the hats, and then they went at it like like the Tatars. You know, these are famed Muslim warriors that sometimes work with Russia, sometimes work against it. Uh, but uh, they recruited them, and Himmler said these Muslims are the most crazy, ferocious fighters we've ever seen. <laughs> so. Anyone welcome if they want to kill the communists, as Hitler saw it.
0: Well, then, how did the CIA hook up with the Muslim brothers?
1: It happened after the end of the war. The uh, the CIA station chief in Munich, Germany, of all places, where Radio Liberty and Radio Free Europe were set up by the CIA to broadcast into communist Eastern Europe during the Cold War. They discovered uh, this organization that the Nazis had created of the Muslim Brotherhood, but the Nazis had created it and the head of it was in Munich, not in prison, but in Munich after the war. And they uh, contacted him and began to get in contact with his network. And then first they used them as... Uh, propaganda broadcasters in in their native tongues in in Chechen and uh, Dagestani and Uzbeki and so forth in the Soviet Union, and then uh, the more they had contact with the mother organization of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt at that time, they brought them to Washington to meet with President Eisenhower. In one case, the, the son-in-law of Hassan al-Banna was was in this famous meeting. And the CIA took a deeper look at this phenomenon and said, I think we can do business with them. (laughs) And from that time, the CIA and the Muslim Brotherhood have been inseparable. I don't know a better way to describe it.
0: Well, would you say then that the American CIA uh, have been using the Muslim Brotherhood in the same way that Nazi Germany was employing them?
1: Very much so. Very much so. Uh, you can take, for example, Afghanistan. Afghanistan, the Mujahideen, most people have heard that expression. Mujahideen were supposedly uh, nationalist Afghan fighters who wanted to rid Afghanistan of the Soviet occupation after 1979. An occupation, by the way, which the big new Brzezinski, Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, Uh, admitted in a French magazine interview years later was his idea that he said if we support these mujahideen in Afghanistan with weapons and so forth we will provoke a situation where most likely the Soviet Red Army will be forced to intervene to support their pro-Russia government, pro-Soviet government. And at that point we will demonize the Soviet Union and started a major Vietnam, he called it Russia's Vietnam in Afghanistan, and that's very much what happened. It took 10 years, it was the biggest covert operation to that point in CIA history, and it uh, used Muslim Brotherhood jihadists that Osama and his network out of Saudi Arabia had created. And uh, the interesting point is, the man chosen... The person chosen to recruit Islamic jihadists from all over the Islamic world, fanatics, suicidal fanatics, was chosen by the U.S. CIA and by the head of Saudi intelligence who worked closely with the CIA. And his name was Osama bin Laden. And bin Laden was sent to Pakistan where he set up a recruitment station which was called in Arabic, the base. Al-Qaeda, and the base was the databank of all these Muslim Brotherhoods that Osama's networks had recruited to come and fight the Holy War against the infidel Russian soldiers in Afghanistan. It took 10 years and they did it. And then after the collapse of the Soviet uh, occupation of Afghanistan, when they Raised the red flag in 1989. The Soviet Union was fortunate collapsed at that point. The CIA flew the leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood by covert airline into Azerbaijan, which had declared independence from the Soviet Union and happened to be the site of the Baku oil, uh, the huge oil reserves of the Caspian Sea. And they made a coup d'etat, the Muslim Brotherhood Networks made a coup d'etat against the Russian-friendly, let's say, because it was the Russian Federation under Yeltsin, the Russian-friendly leadership in Azerbaijan to put in a regime that was corrupted by British Petroleum and the American Rockefeller Oil Companies, Arco and others, to give the oil rights to Baku to the Anglo-Americans. And those oil transports would go not through a Soviet-era pipeline that the Russians had built from Baku up through Chechnya, which was the shortest route, which is a part today of the Russian Federation, up through Chechnya, predominantly Muslim part of Russia, into central uh, Russia and on to the world market. Instead, they created the... Chechen War in the 90s, to destabilize and destroy that Russian pipeline through Chechnya from Baku and then made the argument that a pipeline, costing vastly, vastly more, had to be built from Baku through Azerbaijan through Georgia into Turkey, which is a NATO country. And that's more or less what happened. So the Chechen wars are part of this Muslim Brotherhood, CIA unholy alliance. Most terror organizations today, virtually everyone in Iraq and Syria, Iraq and Syria, uh, most every every terrorist uh, so-called jihad organization active is a direct descendant of this CIA Muslim Brotherhood operation that uh, developed a military capability with Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda in, in Pakistan and Afghanistan in the 80s.
0: I think that what is not very well understood, and uh, you you bring it out in the beginning of your book, is that what happened after World War One. I, I can see from what you write, why this Muslim Brotherhood would have been created in the first place. It's because of the Horrible way the Arabs were treated by by Britain, particularly, but by the Allies after World War One.
1: Very much because you have to have a rage to recruit to a death cult. You can't just recruit people who are, are fat and happy and whatever you want to call. You know, you have to have rage. You have to have something that you can organize and direct to give it expression. And the rage was at the British betrayal, the Balfour Declaration which opened uh, Palestine uh, essentially to, to Jewish uh, settlement that would push out the Palestinians and the Arabs. So uh, that was one betrayal. That was 1916, before the end of the war. The other was Lawrence of Arabia, T.E. Lawrence, British intelligence, who became Arab, quote unquote. He befriended Ibn Saud, the the great uh, founder of the House of Saud, the Saud dynasty, and after the war he said, I risked the fraud on my conviction that Arab help was necessary to our cheap and speedy victory in the East. Better we win and break our word than lose. And he was the one guiding the Arabs to Uh, war against uh, Ottoman Turkey and the British because the British aim in the Great War was to control the oil riches of the Middle East. The British Navy had, at the beginning or shortly before the war, made a decision to convert the entire Royal Navy, the heart of power of the military projection of the British Empire, from coal to oil. But to have oil, the North Sea wasn't known at that time, to have oil to feed the fleet, they had to have secure supply sources, which meant Kuwait, which meant Saudi Arabia, although that the oil riches there were discovered later, and it meant Iran, where Anglo-Persian oil company, later called British Petroleum, was first created. So to control that, they had to control the Middle East, and that's what much of that war was all about.
0: And, of course, in your book, you talk about how the British had enlisted the help of the Arabs to overthrow the Ottomans, and then, of course, it turned around and stabbed them in the back with the settlements yeah. after World War One. What I uh, thought was so quite interesting is that you talked in your book, The Lost Hegemon, about how the British... We're bringing down the Ottoman Empire by saddling them with debt. And uh, that certainly is what's happening today and ever since with the IMF and the World Bank, etc.
1: It's the model. It's the model. If you look closely at uh, what the British and French banks did at the uh, end of the 19th century, beginning of the period leading up to World War I, they took the Ottoman Empire, they gave them loans under friendly conditions. It's always the honey trap. and the the Sultan needed money, hard currency money to you know to build up his economy, to build up the empire. And then the debt became so much that uh, it was impossible for them to repay. So it's kind of like the model of the International Monetary Fund, the IMF today. So in order to repay the creditor banks of France and the city of London, the creditors established something called the Public Debt Administration. It's a little bit like the Dawes plan or the Versailles debt collection plan that was imposed on Germany after World War I. But the Public Debt Administration was totally controlling all the finance ministry revenues and had first claim on those revenues. And, uh, you know, the, the empire was simply being bled under debt slavery through that.
0: I'm speaking with international political analyst, economist, and author, F. William Ingdahl. Today's show, The Lost Hegemon, how the CIA Lost Its Holy War Crusade. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And then again, of course, in order to repay the debt, uh, the Ottomans, the Turks, had to change the way they did business with the rest of their empire so that they had to crack down on everybody, and then it created this resentment against Turkey. And so that's obviously why the Arabs were willing to ally with the British during World War I.
1: Precisely. I, more than 30 years ago, I, I was living in New York working as a journalist and I was researching this period of World War One. And I was in the New York Public Library and I found documents about British finance ministry plans before the war for the carving up of the Ottoman Empire to repay those debts. So this was planned very, very well in advance.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. These things are so well planned in advance.
1: The patriarchs or oligarchs or whatever name you want to call these silly people, uh, they have a a nose like a a beagle for money and where to steal
0: it. Since we're talking about uh, the history of the Ottoman Empire and of course specifically Turkey. Could you talk Hmm? about Fatula Gulen, Gulen's worldwide Islamic movement based in Sailorsburg, Pennsylvania?
1: Sailorsburg, Pennsylvania, if you know anything about Pennsylvania, and I've been there quite often, is not exactly what you would think of as the headquarters of a worldwide Islamic terrorist organization. But since 1998, when Fatula Gulen, uh, a Turkish uh, political cult leader, uh, was forced into exile by the Turkish government uh, for preaching essentially sedition and treason against the Turkish state and institutions. Uh, he has been based in salisbury Pennsylvania, and he got his base there through the CIA, through a man named Graham Fuller. and the former ambassador to the uh, Ankara, uh, to Turkey, as well as another CIA very senior figure, against the objections, interestingly, of the US State Department who said, Fatullah Gulen is no religious scholar. He has no claim on a special uh, academic scholar visa. He has a fifth grade education. And it's said that he has a worldwide empire worth billions that are financed in part by drug money. And the fact that the CIA was responsible to get Fethullah Gulen his residency in Salersburg, Pennsylvania, is very much proof that uh, he is an asset of the CIA. He was picked up in right-wing neo-Nazi Turkish networks that the Gladio NATO had created back in the 70s and the 80s in Turkey, and all NATO countries. And then he was remodeled, if you want to use the term, into a moderate Islamic scholar, something he never was and never will be, in my view. And he was called Imam, but he's no Imam. He even renounced the title, it means teacher. But uh, it sounded very holy at the time, and on his website he talks about the Sufi tradition of moderate Islam, he even made a photo opportunity with Pope John Paul II before his death that he predominantly displays on his website so people say, oh this is really a man of uh, multicultural understanding and inclusiveness and so forth. That's the cover, in reality, Gulen worked with the CIA to set up madrasas immediately when the Soviet Union collapsed. The Gulen organization went in with a lot of money, believed to be, keep in mind, from the drug trade. They went into the entire Turkic belt which historically goes from Turkey up through into the western part of China called Xinjiang province where the Uyghurs, the Turkic Uyghurs, who call themselves East Turkestan, by the way. So this whole belt of Islam from Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, on down to Turkey, was being opened and Suddenly, fatula Gulen's organization began setting up schools with teachers, and in one case, according to the former head of the Turkish CIA, a nationalist, there were 500 CIA agents in Gulen schools in the former Soviet Union who were listed as native-speaking English teachers and they all carried diplomatic passports. Well, I used to be a native speaking English teacher years ago and no one offered me a diplomatic passport. They were CIA agents. (laughs) And uh, that's what this former head of Turkish intelligence uh, described in his memoirs. So Gulen not only was active in the former Soviet Union, trying to create Islamic chaos and and agitation. But his main focus was in Turkey. And there he made a deal with the man who was to become prime minister and most recently president of Turkey, Recep Erdogan. And the deal was the then very influential organization of Fatullah Gulen called Simat in Turkish uh, or service would give its support, its base to support the AK party, the AKP of uh, Erdogan in the elections and get them into power but in return Gulen's people demanded free reign to control the education ministry of Turkey to control appointments of judges in the judiciary in Turkey, and the national police as well, it turns out, in the aftermath of the failed coup d'etat of July by Gülen's people, the army, the, the heart of the Ataturk secular Turkey from uh, the end of World War I. And what they were about was essentially a CIA-directed takeover of the of the Turkish state. And at a certain point, uh, not a case of good guy versus bad guy, but at a certain point, Erdogan, who's very jealous of his power, realized that Gulen wanted to take control over everything. He wanted control of the Turkish CIA, the MIT. And that was in 2013. So there came this confrontation over a park in Istanbul, a historic park where the Erdogan government wanted to construct a modern shopping plaza, shopping mall, and uh, Gulen opposed Erdogan at this point, but the real issue was this control of the CIA in Turkey. So from that point on, there was this open split. Now in July of this year, July 15th in fact, there was a attempted coup d'etat against the Erdogan rule in Turkey. Keep in mind Erdogan is no saint, his focus is power, the power of Erdogan. But his focus is the power of Erdogan. He's very concentrated on that. And he realized that a coup d'etat was being launched. And he was told, according to various reports, by Russian intelligence through Iranian or other intermediaries, that within a few hours, his resort hotel, where he was on holiday with his family, would be invaded by uh, coup uh, helicopters and he would be taken prisoner and shot and he fled to another location and managed to broadcast to the nation the broadcast saying, Turkish people take to the streets to defend your country against the CIA coup d'etat led by Fethullah Gulen and uh, that happened, I mean that's a matter of record. Some people say this was a fake attempt by Erdogan, I don't think it was, I think it was genuine and Graham Fuller, the mentor of Fatullah Gulen was in Istanbul and an island at a conference, 20 minutes boat ride away from the center of Istanbul on the night of the coup d'etat. So this was very much a CIA sponsored attempt and it happened weeks after Erdogan made a 180-degree foreign policy shift away from the NATO line against Assad in Syria and against Russia by shooting down the Russian jet, and he realized that he had been trapped in a dead-end corner, and he began making overtures toward reconciliation with Putin and with China. And uh, to the surprise of the West, Russia began a back-channel dialogue that led to a reopening of relations. And when that happened, the CIA went into high-speed panic. And uh, I think that is the background of the attempted coup d'etat.
0: I remember that uh, some people were trying to claim that Erdogan had staged the coup himself and that it was all fake, But in your opinion, it was a real coup and the Russians actually tipped off Erdogan, right?
1: Well, if that had not happened and Erdogan had been captured and murdered, the coup would have succeeded. It wasn't completely amateurish attempt at all. So, uh, and the fact that E. Fuller and, uh, a CIA colleague of his, Henry Barkey, who, by the way, is, is or was a professor at a university, a 20 minutes car drive from the compound of Fethullah Gulen in Saylorsburg, Pennsylvania. Interesting. They were having a CIA conference on the night of the coup, in other words, monitoring the, the whole process. And that's not a coincidence, I don't think. And both Graham E. Fuller and Henry Barkey made vehement denunciations of charges that they were involved in the coup. Well, a CIA leading figure like Graham E. Fuller, who's architect of the Iran-Contra scam and various other things, and the patron of Fethullah Gulen, you don't go public and deny anything because it says, Methinks thou doth protest too much, Mr. Fuller. He did the same thing with the Boston Massacre, where the two patsies for the Boston Massacre so-called, the Boston uh, Marathon bombing, uh, were nephews of the son-in-law of Graham E. Fuller, (laughs) who uh, married Fuller's daughter. So this is a very tight-knit little intimate network of nastiness, I think. And the CIA was involved in it. And that When this came out about the son-in-law of Graham Fuller being uh, the uncle of these two kids, Graham Fuller held a press conference to deny any connection to this. Again, you know, the, the man has so much blood on his hands, he, he can't help but uh, say, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, by claiming he's innocent, he's innocent, he's innocent.
0: I'm speaking with international political analyst, economist, and author F. William Ingdahl. Today's show, The Lost Hegemon, How the CIA Lost Its Holy War Crusade. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Is there a relationship between the international Gulen movement and the Muslim Brotherhood?
1: The Gulen movement is the Muslim Brotherhood in the Turkish world. The- Turkic people are not Arabs. The Muslim Brotherhood is Sunni Arab. So the Turkish version of the Muslim Brotherhood is the Gulen Movement, essentially. Sunni, pro-death cult, but but Turkic. So you couldn't have an al-Baghdadi, fictional leader of, of uh, the Turkish Islamic Movement. You had to have a Turk, because they're very nationalistic, very ethnically oriented.
0: Let's bring the Muslim Brotherhood up to date in present time with regard to ISIS, for instance. How did ISIS or the Islamic State uh, develop out of al-Qaeda and the Mujahideen?
1: The al-Qaeda, which grew up, as I said earlier, in Pakistan to fight this Mujahideen holy war against the Soviet Red Army, uh, throughout the 1980s, uh, Osama bin Laden's organization, they were flown or transported by the CIA, the leadership, into uh, the former Soviet Union and into Bosnia-Herzegovina and in the U.S. breakup of what was called Yugoslavia back in the early 90s. And then they because they were Arabs, they were predominantly Arabs, recruited by Osama. In the invasion of Iraq by the US in 2003, they were brought into Iraq, and General David Petraeus was instrumental in working with Sunni networks to get this hatred stirred up that was connected with the Muslim Brotherhood, and Sunni against Shia. And so there was Al-Qaeda in Iraq that was established, and soon it transformed into an affiliate in Syria called Al-Qaeda in Syria, and then it became Al-Qaeda in Iraq and Syria. And then at a certain point, the CIA decided to change the name they trained these uh, cadre in a secret NATO base in Turkey, among other places, and also in Jordan. Uh, They needed a new organization to continue the war against Bashar al-Assad. So they called it the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, ISIS. And then someone pointed out, some Israeli journalists, that ISIS is another abbreviation for the Israeli Mossad, so that might not be too good an abbreviation, so they called it the Islamic State. But it's a US, Mossad, and Turkish intelligence operation with money from Saudi Arabia and from Qatar, Kuwait, perhaps also the Emirates, certainly, but Qatar, where the leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood sits presently. And it's about oil and gas war pipelines, pipeline wars, because Syria refused in 2009 to let Qatar run a gas pipeline from Qatar's huge gas field in the Persian Gulf through Syria into Turkey and on to the European Union, the huge gas market consumers over the next 20 years in the world. So in a sense, this very much is a war in Syria or over Syria about control of pipelines for energy.
0: You write in The Lost Hegemon that behind every Arab Spring regime change from Tunisia to Egypt to Libya and later to Syria, one organization invariably emerged out of the shadows to push aside the poorly organized democratic protesters and to take center stage. That organization was the Muslim Brotherhood. How much of the Arab Spring do you think was orchestrated... By the U.S.
1: All of it, every single bit of it. <laughs> I've detailed this in my writings and, and in my books.
0: But now, how do you square that with a democratic protesters? I mean, probably most of the people demonstrating in these countries had very real aspirations. They weren't all just puppets of of the CIA.
1: Of course not. Otherwise, these things wouldn't work. The CIA created something in 1983, Bill Casey was Reagan's head of CIA, and George Bush, the vice president, former director of CIA, worked on this, called the National Endowment for Democracy. And the idea was to have NGOs, so-called private NGOs, uh, not traceable directly to the CIA, to do these destabilizations, and they would do it under the name of democracy. And they would bring to Washington or bring to Belgrade, where Canvas, the organization that came out of the uh, regime change destabilization of Milosevic in, in the 1990s in, in Serbia, they would train certain pre-picked uh, student activist leader types and send them back to lead essentially uh, color revolutions in these countries. So. This was done in China in the Tiananmen Square operation of of Bush Sr. with the CIA in 1989. You get hundreds of thousands of students and you profile them psychologically what the issue is that they'll respond to. I know students who were active in the Egyptian uh, color revolution and they believed that this was genuine spontaneous grassroots. That's the purpose of the whole thing, to make it that. But the reality is what happened after the collapse of Mubarak, those students and their democratic, lovely thoughts vanished and the Muslim Brotherhood, they took over, not the students.
0: But then Morsi was overthrown uh, by, what's his name, Al-Sisi?
1: Al-Sisi, yeah, the military essentially because uh, the military realized that what was on the agenda would take away all their power. Al-Sisi, ironically, was supported by the Saudi government because the Saudis realized the Muslim Brotherhood of Obama and, and Hillary Clinton was aimed at Saudi Arabia as well. They were starting to get very active inside Saudi Arabia. So rather than let uh, Morsi and the Muslim Brothers established a launching base in, in Egypt. They financed al-Sisi to make a essentially a coup d'etat, uh, although they don't like to call it that. But the students, in every case, there's a man named Gene Sharp, he's deceased now, but he was in Boston and created something that worked with the CIA and the Pentagon since 1983 called the Albert Einstein Institution. And he did a years long study of, by the way, the name of the Albert Einstein had nothing to do with the scientist. It just, he confessed years later that it sounded serious, so he took it. He studied nonviolent revolutions from Gandhi and so forth, and said this can be a weapon that the US government can use for regime change. And Give credit where credit is due. He was a clever guy. He put it into a handbook of ABCs that was then translated into the languages of every country that had these color revolutions. One of the key points was to make a monkey out of the ruling dictatorship. And that's usually fairly easy to do, but you do it through social media and other things. And then uh, once you do that, You get the population on your side and you build it into a complete regime change like you had against Mubarak in Egypt.
0: What I don't understand about the CIA or the U.S. being behind these color revolutions, and I'm not referring to the Ukraine here or Eastern Europe or anything like that, but in the Mm -hmm. Arab world, what would have been the point of getting rid of Mubarak or the head of Tunisia? And of course, uh, Gaddafi, etc. It all seems fairly crazy to me. It didn't. Well, work, it didn't work out for them at all, did it?
1: it? No, it didn't. Most of these things don't work out for them. They're a little bit stupid, but uh, that's my personal opinion. But the uh, the triangle that you mentioned, Mubarak in Egypt, bin Ali, the president of Tunisia, they were all dictators, no question about it. But these are uh, dictatorial cultures, Uh, Gaddafi in Libya was chosen by the tribal elders in a process that took 15 years for them to come to a consensus before he became the supreme leader of uh, Libya. But uh, the three of those countries, and this came out in emails that WikiLeaks released from Hillary Clinton those three countries in particular were about to launch something called the Golden Dinar Islamic Bank, Central Bank, and that the oil, especially of Libya, would be sold on the world market only in exchange for Golden Dinar, not for dollars. And if the idea of this gold-backed currency were to spread throughout the rich Muslim world, Arab world, this would have been catastrophe for the U.S. dollar.
0: Yes, that's right. Um, I remember all of that now. That makes total sense.
1: But there's, you know, there's more to it. It's, it's simply, for example, Syria has some of the largest oil reserves in the world that are undeveloped. Syria has huge natural gas reserves that are undeveloped. So if those reserves get linked to a triangle called Iran and Russia and China, that's a huge disadvantage for the Anglo-American oil power. So all of these things kind of came into play. And the idea of Dick Cheney's London 1999 speech to the Institute of Petroleum is the problem of these countries in the Middle East where all the oil reserves are and today you would say gas reserves, also, is that the energy companies are in state ownership and not private. Private meaning ExxonMobil. Private meaning British Petroleum. Private meaning Chevron. Private meaning Shell. So I think that's also what the Arab Spring is all about.
0: William Engdahl, thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Bonnie. I very much enjoyed another chat with you. And I hope your listeners also. And uh, thank you again.
0: I've been speaking with F. William Engdahl. Today's show has been The Lost Hegemon, How the CIA Lost Its Holy War Crusade. William Engdahl is an international political analyst, economist, and author. He is currently visiting professor of geopolitics at Northwest University, Xi'an, China. Among his best-known books are A Century of War, Anglo-American Oil Politics, and the New World Order, Gods of Money, Wall Street and the Death of the American Century, and Seeds of Destruction, The Hidden Agenda of Genetic Manipulation, completing a trilogy on the power of oil, food, and money control. His book, Target China, How Washington and Wall Street Plan to Cage the Asian Dragon, has been a bestseller in Chinese. His latest book is The Lost Hegemon, Whom the Gods Would Destroy, about the CIA and political Islam. Visit williamengdahl.com to sign up for a free bi-monthly geopolitical newsletter with significant content. He is launching a new monthly subscription audio seminar, That's williamengdahl.com, William, E-N-G-D-A-H-L.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. (laughs) the real revolution which is the evolution of the mind if you see